We continue in Nahum this morning, and we pick up uh, where we left off at the seventh verse of chapter one. I mentioned to you last time that Nahum's name means comforter. Well, some kind of <laughs> comforter, right? I mean, Nahum has come with a message of uh, terrifying wrath. I mean, the scenes that he has painted for us are downright dreadful. Swords slashing, chariots racing through the streets, corpses stacked high, blood running down the streets of Nineveh. These are the scenes to which Nahum has treated us. All of this by whose hand? God. Our God. But now this, this island in Nahum's stormy lake as Charles Spurgeon once described Nahum, chapter 1 and verse 7. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that your word has to say to us. We ask humbly now that you will speak, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Nahum, chapter 1, we'll be focusing on verse 7, but for the sake of context, let's go back again and start at verse 1, shall we? An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. How dull are your hearts, dear flock, and mine, to the reality of God. And how dull to the reality of, of Scripture. In some ways, we can't help it. You know, we read these words of the prophet in a cozy, climate-controlled sanctuary, words depicting deep terror and total destruction dealt on God's enemies by God himself, but they seem so far away, like some dusty, distant history. 
And therefore the dullness goes both ways. Dull to the severity of God, we become dull to the goodness of God. You know, His goodness doesn't no longer move us, cause our chests to heave with joyful gratitude and praise to the glory of God for His goodness. Having forgotten His astounding severity, His goodness is no longer amazing to us. Images of Gaza and and Ukraine notwithstanding, or all the other horrors we witnessed over the past century, the terrors to be visited on Nineveh beggar, stagger our imagination. And yet even if we could somehow fully grasp them, even they are but pictures. of the, They're small snapshots of the much deeper and devastating reality of the wrath of God. Only as we get hold of the darkness of the storm that rages against the wicked and the waves of God's wrath that roll over them do we come more fully to experience the solace of the safety and the security that we enjoy under that same strength. There is succor, there is divine help and care under the shadow of the Almighty for all those who seek refuge in Him. Seems to come out of the blue here, doesn't it? Totally out of the blue. How jarring Nahum is to us here, isn't he? I mean, switching so abruptly from the vengeance of God to his patience. From the wrath of God to his goodness. Nahum's style of of preaching brings truths together about our God like, like two magnets of the same pole, you know. To our finite minds, one must always be repelling The other, to God and his servants writing as Nahum did by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, they belong perfectly together. Together always, the terrible ire of God for the wicked, his tender love for his children. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, like the Christians to whom Paul wrote that wonderful letter, his epistle to the Romans, there are two realities to which our hearts must never become dull or indifferent, the realities of the goodness and the severity of God. Remember what Paul had to say to the Christians in Rome upon their realization that, they, that, that the natural branches, the Jews, had been broken off, but that they, the Gentiles, had been grafted into the covenant of God. Do not be haughty about this, Paul says. He warns them, don't be haughty, but fear. Why? For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. It's these two, the goodness and severity of God that we learn from Nahum here, or at least are reminded of, so so that we may come to understand the goodness of God Better, dear ones, let's first grapple with the severity of God. Now, maybe you're saying in your heart, well, we'll wait just a minute. Uh, Again? (laughs) The severity of God again? Uh, There are churches all over town, you know, who are never made to think about such things as these, much less consider them nearly so frequently as we have here in this house, even in such a short time. 
But the simple answer to that is that we, we must consider it over and over again because Scripture brings us back to this again and again and again. I, I, think, we, I think I've made this point to you before. The reason uh, the Bible, for every mention of God's love, makes three mentions of His wrath is not because God's three times more a God of wrath than of love, but rather that we're three times more likely to forget his wrath than his love. Witness modern evangelical worship. You know, worshipers gather as though attending a football game or a movie, you know, arriving breathless from the parking lot, uh, laughing with the ushers, waving at friends, picking up popcorn at the door, you know, as though it were entirely natural for human beings to meet with the thrice holy God Almighty, maker of the universe. No big deal, it seems. Stroll into, into worship, into God's house, and then the services move, move through chatty certainties about God and happy smiles radiate from smooth-talking preachers who de demonstrate absolutely no reticence whatsoever to speak on behalf of the Almighty. The affair has been described as having all the mystery of a city zoning commission meeting. Why? Ron Ryder says, that it, it says it all in the title of his book. It is the trivialization of God. The trivialization of God. We no longer live by the conviction of God's impeccable holiness. Nor of the consequential... Uh, the consequence of offending that holiness, nor of the fear and awe with which Christians must relate to the Almighty. These notions, observes John Stott, these notions appear, or rather, are foreign to modern men. The kind of God who appeals to most people today would be easygoing in his tolerance of our offenses. He would be gentle, kind, and accommodating. He'd have no violent reactions. He would certainly not sweep into a city and start stacking corpses, as he's described here in, in Nahum and the carnage he leaves behind. Unhappily, continues Stott, we seem to have lost the vision of the majesty of God. There is much shallowness and levity among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably say of us that there is no fear of God before their eyes. In public worship, our habit is to slouch or to squat. We do not kneel nowadays. It is more characteristic of us to clap our hands with joy than to blush with shame or tears. Maybe you children are familiar with C.S. Lewis's wonderful tale about the horse and his boy. Yes, you remember the horse named Bree and the boy who rides him, Shasta? And in their adventure, they meet up with another horse, Wynne, and, and her young rider, Erebus, and perhaps you remember the scene near the end of the story when Bree is scoffing at Erebus's suggestion that Aslan, the great king of Narnia, might actually be a real lion. 
As he talks on so glibly, he fails to notice that Wynne and Erebus are staring wide-eyed at something behind him. While Bree spoke on, they, they saw an enormous lion leap up from the outside and balance itself on the top of the green wall, only it was bigger and brighter yellow and, and more beautiful and more alarming than any lion they'd ever seen. And at once it jumped down inside the wall and began approaching Bree from behind. It made no noise at all. And Wynne and Erebus couldn't make any noise themselves, no more than if they were frozen. No doubt, continued Bree, when they speak of him as a lion, they only mean that he's as strong as a lion or as fierce as a lion or something of that kind. You know, even a little girl like you, Erebus, must see it would be quite absurd to suppose he is a real lion. Indeed, it would be disrespectful. If he was a lion, he'd have to be a beast, just like the rest of us. Why, and here Bree began to laugh, if he was a lion, he'd have four paws and a tail and whiskers! Ah, ooh, he, ah, help! For just as he said the word whiskers, one of Aslan's actually tickled his ear. Bree shot away like an arrow to the other end of the enclosure and there turned. The wall was too high for him to jump and he could fly no farther. Erebus and Wynne started back. Now, Bree, Aslan said, you poor, proud, frightened horse, draw near, nearer still. My son, do not dare not to dare. Touch me, smell me. Here are my paws. Here is my tail. There are my whiskers. I am a true beast. Aslan, said Bree in a shaken voice, I'm, I'm afraid that I must be rather a fool. Mm. Happy the horse who knows that while he is still young, or the human, either. And happy are you, Christians, if you early learn this truth and then impress it upon your children from their earliest recollections that your God and theirs is a holy God. And in that holiness, he is severe. He's perfect in his justice. He is robed in majesty. And all of his perfections together make God a true and genuine threat, a terrible threat to his sinful creatures. Teach your children young and well, parents, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Teach your children, if you love them at all, teach them to bow in awe and in reverence before the terrible majesty of the Almighty 
and teach them the best way you can, which is by your own example. For, and this is the second point, it is when one has truly grappled with the severity of God that he begins genuinely or she to appreciate and embrace the goodness of God. It's only when one comes to know the God of Nahum and the God of all of Scripture, when one has seen him, God, preparing the wrath, the cup of wrath for his enemies. I say it's only when one comes to see God's severity and says, as Isaiah did in his presence, Woe is me, I am undone, that one can truly sing, Hallelujah! What a Savior! At the sight of his goodness. Come back with me to Narnia. You remember, children, how at the beginning of all of the adventures that Susan and Lucy and, and Edmund and, and, and Peter had just entered the enchanted land of Narnia. They had not yet met the great lion Aslan. It was Mr. Beaver's job. You remember that man-sized talking beaver to introduce the children to Aslan. But who is Aslan, asks Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the king of the whole wood. He'll put all things to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But we shall see him? asks Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without her knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Brothers and sisters, your king is not safe. Your God is not safe, but 
this you know. Your king, your God is good. He is good. He is, un- our God is unspeakably good. He is. Nahum gives us two images of his goodness on which to dwell on this day and all of our days. For one, God demonstrates his goodness to you, says Nahum, in that he knows you. He knows you. He know, Nahum says he knows those who take refuge in him. And not merely does he know your name. That's not what we're talking about. Although that is wonderful indeed. Not just that he knows of you cognitively, like you know the name of your pharmacist or the lady who rings up your groceries each week. No, God knows you in the biblical sense of the word. He knows you in the sense that he loves you completely and deeply and intimately and perfectly. There's no relationship that you have ever had, ever will have, that can be closer, more perfect than the relationship produced by the knowing love with which God loves you. Which love he has for all who are in Christ Jesus by faith in him. God knows you this wonderful way if you are a Christian today because he has not only created you, He has chosen and He has redeemed you by the blood of His own Son. Your name is engraved upon His hands, He says. Your walls are ever before Him. Now your welfare, the direction of your life, and I mean every minute of every day, dear ones, is of immediate concern to Him. And always of your faithful father. I had a wonderful conversation a couple of days ago with a, with a trucker who was telling me all about how things had gone for the two weeks since our last conversation on the phone. And he was telling me about how the Lord had worked out everything. He found a place for him to sleep every night. And let me tell you, for truck drivers, that is a daily wearisome worrisome concern. Where am I going to sleep? Where can I park this thing tonight? Daily, the Lord had provided him a place to sleep. Daily, multiple times a day, the dock was open when he got there. The the car missed his truck that blew through that red light. He just recounted to me event after event after event after event, how his father had opened the way for his truck over two weeks, over 3,000 miles or however much that he had traveled over those weeks and all those stops. And his voice began to crack. And then I said, you know the wonder of it all? The whole time he's been with you in every place you've been and all over Nebraska and the Dakotas and all your stops, he's been as intimately and truly and directly and present with me as he's been with you. And with every one of his children everywhere, all the time. You see, our God is good. He loves us that way. He is our stronghold. When I told him I was preaching about this on Sunday, he 
He knew he was going to show up in the sermon, actually. I think he kind of hoped he would. Because he wanted to share with you and with me and with everyone how he is our protector. And to triumph gloriously, exaltingly, that our God is a stronghold for us. He is our protector. He's our strength. He's our safety. Even when his children are suffering persecution. He is our God. And and, and as we suffer for his name, Jehovah is our mighty fortress. My, uh, Martin Luther, during the, the, those tumultuous days of the Reformation, called this passage in Nahum an outstanding statement overflowing with consolation. Christians, do not forget the God of your salvation and remember the rock of your refuge. He is your strength. He is your stronghold in distress. He's your shelter from the storm. He's your shade from the heat. Learn to say it no matter what you're facing, no matter what is going on in your life, whatever the hardship, the struggle, carry on this interrogatory with your own heart with the psalmist from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Come on, my soul. He is your fortress. He's your stronghold. He's your shield, your tower, your defender. Even on the day of his wrath, you know, when it shall fall so terribly upon the wicked, you will be safe in him. In fact, he himself has personally made provision for this, hasn't he? He's accomplished this. He's made himself your fortress from the flames. Years ago in California, a farmer who had been growing uh, fields of, of grain was watching his field closely. You see, the locomotives back then would go back and forth on the tracks, burning coal and wood, and the sparks would fly from the stack, and, and often happened that um, those sparks would alight in the field and and start the, the countryside on, on fire. Keenly aware of this, he was keeping his eyes on the trains in the fields, and one day when the grain was ripe and ready for harvest, a train passed by, and a short time later, the farmer saw that the very worst had happened. Off in the distance, he saw the smoke beginning to rise, a wisp of smoke, and he knew that his field was burning, and that unless he moved quickly, the fire would sweep down and, and destroy all of his crop. So he rushed to the blaze, and part of the way he stopped, and he, he started another fire that eventually produced a wall across his acreage. As the, uh, Mr. Jasperson knows all about this practice, doesn't he? He's been involved in, in this. The fire roared down and reached the break and burned itself out. Half of the farmer's crop had been destroyed, the man walked dejectedly through the burn fields, wondering why this had happened to him. What purpose could God have in it? As he walked through the ashes, thinking about these things, he looked down and he noticed the charred body of a hen that had perished in the flames. And he, he kicked it over. And just as he did, five little chicks came running out from underneath. Dear ones, this is what the Lord has done for you and for me. Christ Jesus, our Lord, has become our shelter, our refuge. 
to the death. When the wrath of God was roaring and racing toward you, it was God himself who made himself your shield. He placed himself on the cross, you see, and took the wrath due you so that you and I might escape unharmed, not even singed. So it is for all of you who take refuge in him, all who will take refuge in him. On the day of God's judgment, we who are hidden in Christ will be safe. His wrath will not touch us. And even now, today already, Paul writes to us what in in Romans? Now, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only he is no charred hen. He is a lion. He is the risen lion of Judah. And today he knows you and he defends you even from his very glorious throne in heaven. Amen.